the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. And greetings, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast. I'm James, and hanging out with me are my buds, Mike and Brian. Guys, Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Nice. I I am very glad that we were able to get together at least one more time before the end of the year and uh, just sit back and chat. Well, I'm wearing my... As am I. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and I'm so excited. I decided to wear my uh, my purple bow tie for the first day of Advent, so clearly, <laughs> clearly I'm all in. So, guys, what have you been up to recently? Uh, same old, same old, mostly. Finally moved into the new place. I've got twice as much floor space as I had before. This place is like cavernous. Of course, that's still smaller than your living room, but... <laughs> so the important question is, do you have internet yet? I do. The guy that lived here before is still paying for it. Hey, that's nice. even better. What about you, Mike? What are you up to? Uh, me? I actually took a break in my current reading schedule. I, I had somebody put a book into my hands and say, you have to read this. And uh, it was a sci-fi book. And one of the things is that anytime Sydney gives me one of her sci-fi books, she's never wrong. And uh, this was this was a, a great experience. It was entitled Binti by Nettie Akorafor. And what makes this book so remarkable is that it's steeped in a perspective different than 99% of the science fiction that I've ever read. And one of the things that I've always been a big proponent of is that your literature is steeped in the culture from which it arises. And even if you have science fiction and fantasy authors that are inventing new worlds and inventing new cultures and inventing new places, it always trickles down from the philosophical and cultural history from which the author comes. And uh, Nnedi Okorafor is a is a Nigerian-American individual who has very much steeped the perspective of the sci-fi in which she writes from a Nigerian-centric perspective. And so what you have is a sci-fi character that arises from a place that is very different from the place from which I've arisen. And the, the general path of this quick novella, and it's an easy read, uh, it's a short read, but what you have is this individual who has been accepted into a galactic-level university. And so she is en route to the university. She's having to leave her culture, having to leave her home, having to leave her planet, and taking some part of that planet with her, like her connection to the Earth is actually worn on her skin. And as she is in transit, the absolutely unexpected happen, and her entire survival is put into jeopardy. And now she is in a position where she has to not only negotiate for her own survival, but also try to plan for the survival of those at the university. And so I leave you to read, because I don't want to spoil it, but uh, check out Binti. It's short, and it's just absolutely delightful. How is that spelled? Uh, B-I-N-T-I. You know, for a young adult book, that sounds pretty deep. You know, I, I imagine that the author students call her Dr. Accor for, for a reason. <laughs> now, she's actually an English professor in uh, somewhere in Buffalo, I believe. So I, after I read her book, I was really curious. So I went ahead and, and listened to a couple of her talks. And yeah, there is, there is a depth there. Well, that's interesting. I haven't read very much uh, sci-fi from non 
Eurocentric cultures before. It's kind of an unusual to find one, particularly one that's written in English. Yeah, there's not a whole lot out there, and it's, uh, I'm sure there's more than I've realized because, you know, the mainstream is what the mainstream is. But when something is done well, I think that those who are used to reading the mainstream should check it out, pay attention, because, well, frankly, this is, this is good. And I don't usually appreciate the sci-fi novels so much, even if I enjoy them. So is that what you've been kind of geeking out to recently, Mike? That has been the main focus of my geeking out. Um, I'm still working my way through the Italian fencing tradition. Um, I've taken a bit of a break from that, and, uh, and I'm, I've been reading a couple of other things that are fencing-oriented. But uh, I think there's only so much arms that the Geek in Arms podcast can take, especially when they're listening to Mike <laughs> talk about one Italian fencer after another. Yeah, yeah. I think everyone's just afraid that we'll finish up with the Italians. The, our audience will think we're done, we're past that, and then we'll open the big book of German. Oh, my gosh, especially when there's a translation of 133 coming out this spring. So, mm-hmm. yeah, plenty of time for that. I'm reminded of a certain gentleman whom I knew who was a, in the SCA, was a heavy fighter back in Colorado, where I'd see him at fighter practice, and I would just say, hey, how you doing? Meaning to just, you know, I'm trying to walk into practice, not a whole lot of conversation needed, just want to acknowledge you and say hi. And suddenly he's there in my way and going, I'm having a lot of problem with my Tallhofer right now. And then goes into a long, detailed analysis of the, of the problems that he's having performing adequately, and while he's thinking about shifting to Lichtenauer instead. And I'm standing there... You you know, completely dumbfounded, eyes glazed over, just thinking, what just happened? <laughs> you know, my wife has these similar experiences um, because she'll be saying, so, uh, Mike, how are you? And I'll say, oh, my gosh, I was just talking with uh, Andrew, who's uh, actually a vidcaster and uh, who does religion for breakfast. And I said, I just talked to Andrew. And do you want to hear about how it turns out that my hobby intersects with his thesis? And she was like, no. No, I do not. No, I do not. <laughs> I am so glad you're interested, let me tell you. And then the bedroom door slams and locks. No, it's and, and And you're left thinking, so later then? <laughs> I'm pounding on the door saying, but my fencing books are in there. <laughs> he says, I know. <laughs> It uh, stays locked until you no, try they're out. They're in the fireplace. <laughs> they're in the fi- <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you can all hear Mike's tears as they hit the microphone. <laughs> so, Brian, what about you, man? What have you been geeking out to recently? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I'm in this new apartment, and this comes with two consequences that have got me thinking about things. The first is I am really close to Meltdown Comics now. And that's kind of dangerous for my pocketbook. (laughs) Just remember, you have more room, but not that much room. Unless (laughs) you can... Unfortunately, comic books are, like, pretty expensive for their volume. Yeah. So that's not so much of a problem in space, but... uh, Unless you're... A four block away. Mm -hmm. And Meltdown Comics is the store where a lot of people from Geek and Sundry like to to go for their comics. Oh, that's cool. No kidding. I haven't seen any of them there yet, but I have seen broadcasts in which they are there, so... And we'll see a YouTube video of Geek and Sundry, and or they're doing a videotaping. And there, behind the image collection, they will see Brian's head peeking out over the top of the shelf like Kilroy. <laughs> Probably not. I'm kind of allergic to cameras. It, it's true, Mike. I've seen him break out in hives. Someone pulls out a Nikon. 
But anyway, I, I uh, visited there the other day and uh, came across there. The, we haven't actually talked a whole lot about comic books on this show yet. Kind of an oversight. But anyway, uh, I picked up just something at random. DC has started printing under their Wildstorm imprint again. And I picked up one called Michael Cray, flipped through it a little bit and saw, ooh, Green Arrow, I'll buy this. And it turns out in the Wildstorm universe, Green Arrow, at least a couple other of the Justice League are bad guys. Really? And yeah, it's like, and he died at the end of this comic book. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> so I don't know if I'm invested in the Wildstorm thing or not, because Green Arrow is my favorite superhero in heaven kicked off in issue two of the new book is a little bit uh you know disconcerting. green arrow has been a character that's been around for a while you know he in in comic book form cartoon form and of course the arrow television show which has been on for like what is it in its seventh season now really i think no it's kidding. in its Okay, but still, it's you know been out there for a while. To me, my favorite version of the character will always be the one from the animated series Justice League Unlimited. Mm. Mm, he was pretty good in that one. Because there's a scene where he is sliding down a rope from a glacier onto a submarine, like you do, <laughs> and he is singing his own theme music, <laughs> which is playing in the background, which is just perfect. Well, I've always been a huge Green Arrow fan. Uh, my dad bought me a book. I must have been eight or nine years old. And this is at the point in time when Green Arrow was really not an appropriate character for an eight or nine-year-old. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was back when he was uh, – so he was palling around with Hal Jordan at that point, And they were addressing things like rape and homosexuality and drug use. And Dad didn't know. He just saw Ooh, a comic book with a guy that looks like Robin Hood. We'll get that from my boy. What could possibly <laughs> go wrong? Yeah. But ever since then, I've just I really enjoyed Green Arrow. Yes, he is Batman with a bow, but uh, he's still my favorite. You, you say that like there's something to apologize for. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Remember who you're talking to. <laughs> well, you know, Batman with a bow in kind of the bad ways. You know, he had an arrow car and the aeroplane. Did, uh, and it was it was not good for a while. Didn't he have like the the arrow layer or something? The arrow cave too. The arrow cave, right? Yeah, there was one comic I remember. It was I forget what variation of the DC universe it was, but he was he had Harley Quinn in hiding with him, and she's like, "What do you mean? You have an arrow car? You have like an aeroplane and the arrow cave? That's just stupid. You know, you're just copying Batman. You should call it the Quiver." And Green Arrow's like. Okay, that's better. <laughs> it's like that? Yeah. I, okay, yeah, that's actually good. I think that scene was when uh, Kevin Smith was writing for the book. Oh. I believe it. Uh, that, was a, that was a really good series. Actually, that, the title of that uh, series was called Quiver. Oh, okay. Cool. He did a really nice job yeah. with it. Oh. I've always liked Green Arrow's The Champion of the Underdog. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. Batman just beats up bad guys because he's got angst. Green Arrow really cares about all of the people on the street. Uh, the working man class. Yeah. Uh, and which is interesting because he is a billionaire, but he, you know, he walked away from all of that to, to protect the people who really needed protecting. And that's always said something to me. Mm. You know, we should, in the coming year, we should have a good portion of an episode dedicated to comics that we have loved or comics that we are loving right now. Mm -hmm. Or even like you know, I think that I think that you're touching on something that's a little bit deeper. Like, why do we love the heroes we love? 
Oh, let's, yeah. Let's sit down with the in- introspection and say, what makes me fall in love with this hero? See, I was keeping it all superficial, but I like the way you're going with it. <laughs> like, let's get deep on this. Do you remember you know, who you were talking to? I'll actually have a little bit more to say on that a little while later if we do talk about Justice League. Fair enough. Because uh, there were some things that I noticed in that film that I, I'd kind of like to talk about. I got you. Uh, uh, the other consequence of my moving into this new place is I've had this idea in my head for many years of having a space that is just dedicated to a role-playing game. Mm, and I've yeah. always I've always lived in a place with someone else, you know, at my parents' house that uh, – renting a back bedroom from somebody else or living with my wife. But now I have space for a big table. I've got this big giant wall with nothing on it. I'm like, I could have my role-playing room now. Yeah. What should I do with it? I personally hope you do so that I can live vicariously through that. (laughs) Because I've often dreamed of having something similar, but I have... Absolutely. Unless I want to put it in the very small shed where I keep my lawnmower and garden tools in my backyard, because that's the only space where I could dream of putting it. Mm-hmm. I'm getting this idea of James and I coming out to visit just to decorate that one area of your apartment. You know, that'd be awesome. <laughs> I think I can having... sell that to my wife. <laughs> but, bye, dear. I'm going to Los Angeles to help Brian decorate a five foot by five foot square corner of his apartment. Like, whoa, 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 what makes you think that you're getting away with that? I'm taking the kids with me. Done. <laughs> I'm sure there's great babysitters in the area. I raised two <laughs> almost functional children. <laughs> I can help. <laughs> with an asterisk after I'm going to take no responsibility myself. <laughs> Wise man. But I'm sorry, what were you saying, Brian? I was saying I've got this, this idea. I've got this big, long wall, and I want to get a like a metal strip, something magnetic, so I can hang maps up there with a magnet. And they'll be easily to change out, and they won't be damaged. Better than a cork board, better than actually, like, putting things up on the wall. But I'm having a little bit of trouble, you know, what else could I do? Yeah. Now, do you have a, are you just talking about all RPGs in general, or is there a specific one or two that you're, like, zeroing in on? Well... Chances are probably about 85% that I'm going to be starting up another Middle-Earth role-playing game. Oh. Okay, so cool. you're going to go Prancing Pony uh, style right there. That's what you need to do. <laughs> Get some big uh, wooden flagons. I, I don't see why not. I, I was either going to say that or like the, uh, the, the map and document room in Gondor, like where I, like Gandalf went to to look for information about the ring. Now, that is an idea. You've got, like, a little cupboard with, like, scrolls in it and rolled up maps and and, and a table there with just various research material. I love the fact that we're just spitballing about what we want him to decorate his apartment like. Well, ultimately, Mike, if you and I agree on something, then he has to go with it because majority rules. I think so. (laughs) We're going to be putting it to a vote at the end of the show? Yes, exactly. Oh, heck. Let's just start an online poll for what we should do. I mean, there's absolutely no way that could go wrong. No, no. And uh, the next one just has... You think I'll wind up with an apartment called Bodie McBoatface? (laughs) No, what will happen is that the next episode we record will just have you laughing and sighing maniacally in the background because the online poll went crazy and they ended up voting for you to create a space dedicated to Call of Cthulhu. Oh, no. (laughs) Well, better that than My Little Pony. 
Um, I'm going to challenge you on that because I think Cthulhu appeared in My Little Pony. <laughs> I would watch that episode. <laughs> I, it's, I watch it sometimes with my daughter, and my wife and I, we, after watching some of it, we're like, okay, this isn't that bad. It actually has a good message. We see why there's such the following behind it, and we'll let her watch it. And there have been once or twice, I, and I took her, I think I may have mentioned this before, I took her to go see the My Little Pony movie because I'm a good parent. And there's always one or two episodes where something just does go a little crazy and it just leaves me blinking my eyes going, what did I just watch? <laughs> you know, I had a similar experience in that, uh, you know, since I have young girls as well, and they were watching My Little Pony and season one, I was like, you know, somebody, you know, there's a lot of crap that's made for kids. And this one is actually not, I mean, this one is watchable. And then I kind of hung on for season two and kind of fell off on season three. And I was kind of glad that my children kind of fell off after season four. So, <laughs> Yeah, she's moved on. She doesn't watch My Little Pony often. She's moved on to things like other children's shows who I don't even want to mention on the podcast, but oh other things, other things. You know, I, I got to put in one. And if we're, if we're talking about the things that we've done with our kids, I won't mention any names, but there were certain, you know, groups of fairies and, you know, the kinds of bell sounds they would make as they did their thing. Um, but I was really intrigued that these fairies met up with some pirate fairy or whatnot, and she showed up after exiling herself from, you know, the, the fairy hollow or whatever, and she shows back up with a swept hilt rapier on her hip. And I'm like, you know, that's not like a crochet needle or a needle that she's tacked something on as a handguard to. Like, no, this is a diamond cross-section swept hilt rapier. This fairy spent time and effort forging and tempering this blade. Uh, which one of the main characters is she planning on running through? I, I'm in. <laughs> I've seen the exact little movie you're talking about um, about two dozen times, I'm sad to say. <laughs> and uh, I had a lot of those exact same thoughts. You didn't get your happy ending, did you? Well, the movie ended one way or another, so we'll just call it not so much happy as in just grim satisfaction. Fair. So, James, what are you geeking out about? Oh, my usual multi-number of things. Still absolutely loving the Before the Mast books that my wife bought me, which leads me to the mention that I'm just super excited that the good people at the Museum of the Mary Rose mentioned us in one of their Facebook posts. I saw that. I am still just utterly geeking out about that. And I liked how they phrased that. If you like geeky things and if you follow the Mary Rose, then you probably are. Then, uh, then check out Geek at Arms, you know, that were mentioned in one of their podcasts, and they included a link to our Facebook page. And it's like, really cool. And along with that, I need to talk about a correction for myself. This was actually pointed out to me by a good friend of mine from back in Colorado named Sharon. She actually is from England. She's from uh, Felixstowe. And she reminded me that the Mary Rose did not actually sink in the mouth of the Thames River. I misremembered when I talked about that in the last podcast. I, For some reason, it was just in my head that the rose went down somewhere in the, at the mouth where the Thames empties in, into the strait. But I was completely wrong. She, The Mary Rose went down in 1545 in the Solent outside of Portsmouth. 
And uh, she was heading out there because some friendships had showed up. And there's a lot of conjecture about why she went down. Was it human error? Was it because of the French attacking? Was it because of the wind? Was it because the Mary Rose was just too heavy? But either way, she went down. So there is my correction. You know, and that's part of good scholarship is letting people know when you have uh, misspoken. So, great. And I want to thank the wonderful people at the Mary Rose Museum for not blatantly pointing out, don't listen to this fool who obviously doesn't know what he's talking about. (laughs) Very kind of them. But other than just continuing to absorb this book, and I'm doing it slowly because there is just so much information to take in. It's going to be one that is brought up occasionally over the next several podcasts. You know, as I learn something new or interesting in it, I'm just going to just pop it in here and there because it is such a great book. It's not for everybody. I like it because, you know, once again, the history buff that I am and uh, the fact that I've been to the museum and it's part of a time period that I am very interested in. But other than that, I've got a couple of books that I have been reading. One of them is another retelling of the whole Robin Hood mythos, but this time doing a good job of focusing on what's been happening politically in the time period, especially the angst, or not the angst, but the simmering resentment that there is between Saxon and Norman in England. And that book is called Loxley by John Bainbridge. And uh, with Thanksgiving not too long ago and Black Friday, I took advantage of uh, some of the Black Friday deals for, for Amazon book downloads. And for cheap, I picked up the uh, one of the new Star Wars books, uh, Star Wars Aftermath by Chuck Windig, and already tore through that book. And I picked up a new one that I have not even had a chance to really look at yet, but I really liked the, uh, the premise of it. It's called uh, Theft of Swords by Michael J. Sullivan. And the idea is that in this book, there's no hero. There's no young warrior with a destiny. It's two guys. One is a thief and another one is his mercenary buddy. And they get framed for killing the king. Ooh. So we don't have any good guys, but we do have protagonists that we feel sympathetic towards because they're set up. Are they perfect? Not by any means. Are they innocent? No, but neither are they horrible monsters. So I'm going to finish up Loxley first, and then I'll get to that one, and I'll give a report on them later. Excellent. Looking forward to it. So the only other thing I've been geeking out to recently was I got a chance to go see Thor. One, it was very good. It was the most I've laughed at a Marvel movie, And, and not in a bad way either. It was just funny. Always fun to see uh, Jeff Goldblum playing Jeff Goldblum with makeup on. Um, that was his character's name, Jeff Goldblum with makeup on. Oh, no. Because pretty much that was the character. <laughs> and uh, no, don't take that the wrong way, though. He was fantastic. He did a great job playing the... Uh, Brian, help me out. What was his character's name? Um, the Game Master or something? or Something like that. Uh, it seemed a little stronger than that. Grandmaster. That was it. Yeah, Grandmaster. So it was a highly enjoyable movie. I got to see it with a couple of friends. Looking forward to taking Joy to see it. Hopefully we can catch it in theaters before it heads to DVD. But I wanted to see Justice League as well, but that one just didn't happen. And honestly, between the two, I think I would have... You made the right choice. Yeah, I I I was wanting to see Thor more. Because we had Thor in it, uh, Loki had, uh, I might give a couple spoilers here, but the movie has been out for a few weeks. You know, it had Mark Ruffalo in it as the Hulk, has Kate Blanchett in it, who is just a joy in everything she's in. 
And I've got something more to say on that in a few minutes. But yeah, so Brian, you talked about seeing both Thor and Justice League. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts, man. What do you think? Justice League, uh, as expected, it was heavy and dark and brooding. There's been something that's been bothering me about the DC cinematic treatment, particularly Batman. Now, Batman's defining characteristic is the man will not touch a gun. At one point in the in the comic books, he did pick up a gun and, and shot somebody, and it was a big freaking deal. So why is it in the movies, Batman's got guns everywhere? Hmm. I mean, tanks and rockets, and it's like I don't get that they're they're violating the character to that degree. I mean, he, that is is frankly not Batman. I, I love the Dark Knight trilogy; I thought it was great, but it's it's really just not very true to the character. And I had similar problems with the treatment of Superman and Man of Steel, where, I mean, okay, yeah, he gets burned, all his clothes burned off in the oil rig fire, and the first thing he does is he goes and he steals clothing from poor people. Hmm. Well, no, I can see Superman breaking into the Goodwill and grabbing that clothing, but I don't think he would take it off of the, the clothesline from people who clearly don't have enough stuff. Uh, unless he was going to, you know, pin a 50 to the clothesline. Right, and I doubt that he had a 50 since he had just been burned to death. No, he knocked off a liquor store to get it. <laughs> right. And he had this temper tantrum that he threw, and he wrecked the, the trucker. But yeah, the trucker was a jerk, but that truck probably belonged to his employer, you know? And the, the treatment of these characters, they're not the – we look at these heroes, these comic book characters that we like, and there's reasons that we look up to them. And Superman we look up to – his goodness, his morality is not because he's a Kryptonian. It's because he was raised by Jonathan Kent in Kansas. And so those things are integral part of the character that he had you know, prior to becoming Superman. They're not a result of his being Superman. They are what make him Superman. Uh, and Batman's phobia about guns, it's, it's what makes him who he is. It's the reason that he has all the gadgets. It's the reason that he studies to be the best at everything, best in the world at everything, according to the, the lore, although I don't know how that could possibly be true. You know, if the man can pick up a gun, then what does he need batarangs and grapple guns and all these gizmos for? And so by, by violating those central pieces of the character, I think that is what is making the DC movies fall down. And I think that's what made Wonder Woman so good. Is it because, staying true to who this, who this character fundamentally was? Right. Uh, and Justice League fell down for much the same reasons, you know, Batman with guns, Superman being a, a punk. The brilliant highlights of it, Wonder Woman was, of course, very good. And The Flash, the kid, Ezra Miller, I think, or something like that, he was delightful as The Flash. And I thought that that particular character was, was true to the comics and true to who he was. And that was the best part of the movie, was these characters acting like who they should be. What about Aquaman? <laughs> Aquaman's kind of the exception to the rule because you don't really want him to be like he is in the comics because he's kind of he's hard to pin down. But instead of a blonde guy with green pants and an orange scale shirt, they got huge Samoan looking tattooed Jason Momoa to play him. Yeah. Momoa was good. He was fun. I thought he overplayed it a couple of times. But he was kind of in keeping with the the vision of Aquaman as he was being written. I don't really follow Aquaman all that much, but I know Tad Williams wrote him for a while pretty successfully. And when they relaunched the New 52, 
they poked a little fun at him in the first couple of issues, but they were kind of taking him a little bit more seriously. He was a uh, he had some gravitas to him, and I think that Momoa delivered on that more than the classic Super Friends Aquaman that nobody would have really take seriously. Coming in to the meeting, riding on a, the back of a pair of flying fish. Right. That Aquaman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was actually a little disappointed that we didn't get to see a little bit more of Atlantis. Um, and uh, the character Mira, who eventually, I don't know which continuity they were following exactly, but uh, in some stories, Mira is his wife. Uh, in this one, they appear to not really know each other. But she's a really cool character that I would like to have seen more of. And maybe we will in the Aquaman movie that's supposed to be, I think, next year or the year after. I hope that we see one. I think they could do some great things with it. I hope that we see another Wonder Woman movie. Mm-hmm. I think that's a given. I mean, with as well as they treated that movie the first time around, I would go see the I, sequel. As long as one it has Gal Gardot as Wonder Woman and Patty Jenkins back in the director's chair. Yes. Let's keep those two together, and I think we'll have another fantastic movie. And uh, hopefully the people who do Justice League, do Batman movies, do Superman movies, will take a cue and will get a Justice League movie that is less, let's call it for what it was. It was Wonder Woman and her mediocre entourage. (laughs) And the Flash. And the Flash. Well, I mean, I think that we're hitting Um, on something that is really kind of part of our culture. I mean, we have these forms of media that are that are raising questions to some of the fundamental character components of what a hero is. We're seeking after, as a culture, darker images for our heroes and more brooding characters. And I, I haven't seen this film, so I can't raise this as, as a criticism, but I can ask Brian the question. Uh, do you think it's the director is trying to find something that they think the culture will find more interesting in terms of a flawed character? Or do you think that this is just a lack of familiarity with the roots of these characters? It's an interesting question. I don't think that you can say it's a lack of familiarity because they are executive produced by Jeff Johns, who is a fantastic comic book author. I think it really, they are trying to reflect a little bit of the the postmodern attitude we have toward heroes. But I think that there's ways to do that that aren't that are more true to who the people, who the characters are, rather than, you know, I'm okay with Batman being brooding. Batman has always been brooding. That fits perfectly with him. But that doesn't mean he needs to pick up a machine gun and go gunning down parademons. I can see the conflict in Superman. I could see, hey, I am the most powerful person in the world, possibly in the galaxy, and I'm living among people who are made out of paper and what kind of psychological damage does it do when you have to be so very careful tiptoeing through the world but that doesn't mean he needs to be churlish and i think the director's cut i didn't see the the theatrical cut of batman versus superman but at least the director's cut i thought that the treatment of superman was a little bit better where he was wrestling with the problem of i can do so much but if i do i'm taking choice away from people Mm. What are the consequences of me exercising my power? And they, they did touch on that, and I thought it was really nice. So many people hated that movie. And so maybe I came into it with my expectations lowered enough that I was able to appreciate it for what it was. And, you know, and I think there's also the, the criticisms that where, you know, in Man of Steel, the entire city of Metropolis was pretty much leveled. And we spent an awful lot of time knocking down buildings and shooting I-beams and massive fighting. But 
got to remember they're being directed by Zack Snyder. And if you look at his previous work, that's to be expected. Mm. They're I, highly stylized. They're disastrous movies. I think one thing that the DC movies are suffering from is that there are so many different variations of characters in the DC universe. Mm. There have been so many different parallel universes, uh, multi-worlds, and uh, divergent timelines. And it's not just the dichotomy of the superhero and the secret identity. There's the superhero version A, superhero version B, superhero C, D, and so on and so forth. And because they have such a, a gigantic pot from which to pull from, I feel like, and I've seen this in both the Superman, the Man of Steel, and in the Batman versus Superman, I feel like that these movies are being done by committee, and Mm -hmm. each member of the committee is looking at a different series, a different run of comics, saying, oh, we should use this element. Oh, we should also use this. Oh, hey, hey, this was really cool, too, when uh, Batman wasn't Bruce Wayne. Batman was Bruce Wayne's dad and used guns. And these are just being thrown into a melting pot of a movie. Or a blender. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a blender. And they're taking not just what they think is cool, but also I think they're trying to predict what we want to see. (laughs) And they're missing that. Yeah, I, I feel like the quality control is not quite there. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I have, and I think that it's an apt metaphor of when we have uh, people that try to put mythology on the big screen. Because when we have mythological characters, that whether we're drawing from what's probably most familiar to most of our listeners, the Greco-Roman tradition, is that we have these stories that are not necessarily created with any sort of continuity in mind. They are just characters that have been passed down through a mythological tradition, and we don't try to put any sort of canon to it. And in fact, when you take a look at some of these mythological traditions, uh, the stories of what happened to uh, Achilles in, in the fields of Troy do not line up with each other. But, you know, you'll read the one that you've got and go along with it. And sometimes when you have these directors that try to put together television shows or cartoons or movies that feature these mythological characters or try to put the myth on screen, you wind up getting bits and pieces of this mythos while never really being true to any particular one. And I wonder if that's what's kind of happening in our pop culture as well, because we have what isn't a a cohesive storyline. We don't have a, I mean, obviously we don't have a history, even if you establish a canon um, that's usually artificially imposed after the fact. But you do have this particular mythos, and now you're trying to draw from way too much of the mythos in order to represent it on a big screen. It makes me wonder, though, why DC has such a hard time, for the most part, like we've said, Wonder Woman was delightful, why they have a hard time understanding that, and why, for the most part, Marvel gets it. Who's in charge of the, the cinematic universe at Marvel? I mean, who's, who's the, the guiding force behind that? Well, right now it's a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm just imagining the uh, somebody from D.C. in a hostile takeover cutting down whoever is the head at Marvel, and then the chair spinning around, and you see the mouse in red pants saying, you think you've taken, down, you think you've taken him down. You have only made me stronger. 
okay, the current guy who's in charge of Marvel Pictures, Marvel Studios, it's uh, Kevin Fage, Fage. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, okay. he was the director of uh, Iron Man, I believe, right? Yeah, president of Marvel Studios and American film producer. See, there's the difference, because the person in charge of the Marvel movie franchise is a filmmaker. Yeah. The person in charge of the DC filmic universe is a comic book author, Jeff okay. Johns. Yeah, I'm looking at his uh, at Kevin's. Okay, it goes back to he was associate producer of Blade in 1998. X-Men, Daredevil, X2, Hulk, Punisher, uh, Blade, 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 uh, Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, Iron Man, producer of Iron Man. So, I mean, he's been either producer or executive producer for everything and and still is. From his mistakes. And I'm looking at you, Daredevil. (laughs) (laughs) But I think the primary difference is the guy in charge is somebody who makes movies, not a comic book author who's trying to move into a different media environment. So you know, Jeff Johns of... is a fantastic comic author, hmm. but he doesn't know how to make movies, apparently. Yeah, they can't all be Joss Whedon. Did I kill it? No, we're giving you room in the audio to plug in the sound of the applause. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> no, but he is one of those rare people. He's had some fabulous stints writing comic books with both his uh, Buffy comic books and X-Men. And he's directed a couple of decent movies. You know, a few. A few. <laughs> now, I'm looking at uh, at John's, and it looks like he's not actually really involved with the recent uh, DC movies. So maybe I'm blaming him uh, unjustly. He was responsible for Green Lantern, though. So, <laughs> See, I'm, I'll admit that I am less familiar with what's going on in DC as I am with Marvel. With DC right now, I mean, I'll pick up a couple of episodes of one of their shows, and then I'll just kind of fall off. I am kind of slowly watching my way through Supergirl, and you know, I'll say this: it isn't an Agents of Shield, but I like it. It's cheesy, but I like the flavor of cheese, and I eat it frequently. <laughs> yeah, Joy and I have slowly been making our way through Supergirl too, and for the most part, we've enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm only in season one, it's, and I heard that that's what's making me like yeah. it. Every once in a while, it gets a little bit too CWE for our taste, but you know, it's for the most part, it's all right. Well, I I haven't really paid much attention to Supergirl except where she crosses over with the Arrow and Flash stories. I mean, I've I've enjoyed what I've seen, um, but I I have really really enjoyed Arrow, although it's kind of lost its footing the last two seasons. And uh, Flash, the first season was fantastic. We'll see if it uh, pulls through this season. So I think we pretty much covered Justice League. But uh, what were your thoughts on Thor? Well, Thor was entertaining in every way. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that movie. I was a little not sold on the the character Korg because he seemed to be comic relief in a movie that was already full of comedy, but that's okay. I mean, he was still funny. Uh, (laughs) I was laughing the whole time pretty much. Uh, The visual effects were fantastic. I had probably the same reaction to, uh, I don't want to give any spoilers, but the particular event, which I thought, oh, gosh, can he be Thor if that happens? You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Uh, I, so I had pretty much the same same uh, reaction as uh, Thor himself did. And, you know, by the end of the movie, I'm like, wow, that was that was a good thing to have happened in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Can I be any more vague than that? 
<laughs> well, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. So well done. So good job. Uh, one thing that this movie did make me realize is that if you were an elf in any of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies, that means you are fated to become a villain in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> I will prove my work. Uh, in Orlando uh, Bloom. Well, no. <laughs> no. But because you said Orlando Bloom, you made me forget the name I was trying to think of. Thank you, Brian. You were thinking of Hugo Weaving. Okay, so I will prove my work. Hugo Weaving, who, of course, was Elrond in the first trilogy. Uh, he played the Red Skull in Captain America, the first Avenger. Did good at both. Uh, will Ferrell? No. Next. <laughs> Next, Lee Pace, who played Thranduil in the Hobbit movies. He played Ronan in Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh. And finally, we have Kate Blanchett, who plays Galadriel and was Hela in the new Thor Ragnarok. Well, I guess you can say that none of them got typecasted. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hugo Weaving kind of did. So, Orlando Bloom, Marvel will be calling you any day now to let you know who you can be in Captain Marvel, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, Ant-Man 2, you know, if you're not busy. Yeah, what has he done? Nothing. Whatever he wants, I imagine. Apparently, <laughs> this past year, there was another Pirates of the Caribbean movie that he was in. I didn't see it. Did anyone? I think I saw the third one and stopped there. See, we still got Craig Parker. He was Haldir. Oh, yeah. He would be a great Marvel villain. Yes, he would. Uh, Liv Tyler. I think she would make oh, a great yeah. Marvel villain. That makes me wonder who she would play. But since it is the holiday season, I, I think there's probably an elf that could also probably play a villain. I think Will Ferrell played an elf, and I think that that same character could be a villain in a movie. Just Buddy the Elf is a Marvel movie villain. But yeah, eroding the sanity of those around him, this can happen. It doesn't even have to be deliberate. That's fine. I'd watch it. I would. So somehow we got into a lot deeper discussion about comic books and comic book movies than I thought we were going to. Well, that happens. <laughs> yes, it does. Well, I think it's time to talk about board games. I think it is. Cool. Now, we talked about RPGs for first-timers, both what we would recommend for GMs and what game systems we would recommend for first-time players. And so uh, I think we were wanting to talk about what board games we would recommend for players who their only real exposure to it has been games like Monopoly and Parcheesi. Yeah, what do we use to introduce, what, well, I guess we could say our game-curious game or gamer-curious friends, because, I mean, a lot of people have maybe heard of Catan, maybe even played Catan and used that as their gateway drug. But yeah, I have a lot of friends that get introduced to the great wide world of game stores because they visited in our living room. <laughs> I'm willing to bet that your living room is, I'm sure you have like a shelf or, I don't know, a shrine maybe of board games. And that could probably serve as a game store. Light some incense for Carcassonne. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's funny because when we have people come into our house, um, yeah, it's it, you just about called it. I mean, we have these um, these very basic pine shelves, and uh, there's just games loaded up on these shelves in the corner, and we'll have people come over and say, "That's a lot of games." <laughs> I've not heard of these games. 
you know, sometimes it's a matter of, well, what do you want to play or do you want to play? And what are you into is usually the kind of question that I ask. And when they tell me what they like doing in a game, then we can usually find something that's, that's their style. You know, I'll, I'll say something to the effect of, well, have you ever played Risk? And they'll say sometimes, oh, yeah. And sometimes they'll say, oh, yeah. Like, okay, well, what didn't you like about Risk? It's like, well, um, it's that I'll get my butt kicked in the first 30 minutes, and then I'll watch my other two friends slog it out for the next six hours. And that doesn't tell me that they don't like the combat. They just don't like the eliminative factor and that it can go on forever. So I'm like, well, why don't we try Small World? Because that is neither eliminative and it has a timeline. If you find yourself getting your butt kicked, okay, let's put your kingdom into decline and let's pull out another race. And if worse comes to worse, it's only going to last 45 minutes. Right. Well, in my experience, most of my... Introducing people to board gaming has been my parents at Christmas time and a couple other people their age. And they have a, let's see if I can <laughs> describe my parents without insulting them. My mom doesn't have a lot of patience for learning complex rules. So things like Ticket to Ride, she enjoys that game. Dominion was like on the edge of, okay, this is too complex for me to really pay attention to because she wants to sit around the table and gab with people, and the game is secondary to that. Mm. My dad's a little bit more competitive and a little bit more willing to, hey, let's figure out how this game works and what to do with it. And so he's enjoyed, again, Ticket to Ride. He seemed to like King of Tokyo. Oh, yes. And so trying to find the games that are interesting to me and yet still straightforward enough that they'll be engaged in it and entertained by it has been the balancing act that I found myself making. Have you considered bringing Suro to your parents? I have not tried Suro. I haven't even heard of that one. Oh, my gosh. This is a wonderful I've seen it on the shelf for years and years, but never tried it. Oh, oh man. Grab a couple of buddies, because it's one of those things that it appeals to me, because uh, if I'm looking for a quick game to throw out there, and especially if I've had a long, hard, complex day, uh, especially raising two kids, there are sometimes you don't want to fiddle with 50,000 pieces. Arkham Horror, I'm looking at you. Just real quickly, how do you, how do you spell that game? It starts with a T, doesn't it? It starts with a T. T-S-U-R-O? T-S-U-R-O. Gotcha. Oh, it's Suro, the game of the path. Yeah, and really all it is, you pick out a piece, you put it on one of the marks at the edge of the board, you have three tiles, you lay down a tile, and you follow that path. It's as simple as that, except all the paths on these tiles wind up going in all these various directions. And once you lay it down, you have to follow it, even as it intersects paths that other people lay down. And if you wind up on the same tile as somebody else, you are completely at their mercy as to whether or not you get run off the board. Kind of like life, because you have to suffer for other people's choices. <laughs> it also kind of reminds me, it's a different game style, of course, but just the look of the board reminds me of Carcassonne. You know, it's, uh, there are some parallels there in that it's one of those games, Carcassonne, you play it as you set it up. And it's also a really great one for first-time gamers because you can, in the teaching phase, have as many or as few rules as you like. Because when I was playing this with my five-year-old, it was a matching game. As 
I started adding some more rules to that, like, oh, and when you place a piece down, you get scored by how many cities you build or how many city pieces you put into the construction. And then you add roads to that, and then you add fields to that. And then if you so wish, you can add expansions to that. And, of course, the gameplay changes considerably depending on which expansions you put in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when we first had the idea to discuss games for first-timers, I kind of went a little overboard and created some lists. Oh, lovely. <laughs> My first one I came up with was gateway drug games. These are beyond, like I said before, the Monopoly and Parcheesi and playing with dominoes, things like that. And I've got like Apples to Apples, uh, Settlers of Catan, which Settlers of Catan is almost getting to the stage of Monopoly and other board games like that. Because yeah, you can pick it up at Walmart or Target now. And people are becoming very familiar with it. Hang on. I'm going to stop both of you guys right there. Even if it is mainstream, it's not Monopoly. Monopoly's broken. (laughs) No, I agree with you. I agree with you. But you can almost find them right next to each other on the shelf at Target. Good. Thank you, Target. You're listening. (laughs) I also included Ticket to Ride, Scattergories, and Carcassonne. You know, these are ones just to kind of get people in, showing that there's a next level of games. Beyond that, I've got Beyond Apples to Apples. These are things which are not difficult to learn, but are a bit more uh, genre-fied, a little bit geekier, so to speak. And we've got Zombies, Kill Dr. Lucky. Yes. Uh, And there's also a Save Dr. Lucky, which is also fun. Small World, as you mentioned, Mike. A game called Code Names. And uh, Bang, the dice game. You know what? I'll tell you. Uh, you mentioned code names, and at first I turned my nose at code names because I was a bad person. <laughs> I, I had seen this coming up so much in mainstream circles that it was like, nope, nope, it's a mainstream game, it's got to be dumb. And then I kind of uh, got over being that stupid, and I gave it a try, and I'm like, this is actually really great. Mm-hmm. Just in case our listeners don't know what this game is, do you want to do you want to describe what Codenames is? Uh, go ahead. All right. Well, I, if you want me to do it, all right. Um, Codenames is where you lay uh, you lay a series of words out in a grid, and you have two teams, and uh, there is one person who knows all the right words to choose for your score because you you are scored uh, based on um, how many of your team's words your team chooses. Um, and the other team, there's a red team and a blue team, and uh, there are some other, uh, the other team also has words. If uh, anybody chooses those words, then the red team gets, uh, gets those cards. And there's an automatic death, like if you choose this one, the game is over and you lose. So there is one person who knows all the right cards for your team to choose, and you are trying to give clues as to what those cards are. And you have to use the number of how many cards you are trying to link together with one concept, and then you give another clue. So if there's the word boat and the word sea and the word salt, you might say ship three, and hopefully they will connect all three of those ideas, and sometimes they're a bit of a stretch. And the one thing that I like about it is it's a very high empathy game. It relies on your understanding, not just of how clever or great or smart your connections can be, but how can you lay it out so that the other people on your team will understand? And that's where the real subtlety of the game is. Yeah. 
my next category I have is, wait, there's card games too? <laughs> and for that one, I've got the game Smash Up, which I've only had a chance to play a couple of times, but it's fun. I was doing a share at one of the radio stations I worked for in the past, and one of our, our listener volunteers who came to help man the phones brought his daughter, and they brought Smash Up. And when I wasn't doing an air shift and when no one was calling in, a few of us decided to gather around a table to play it, and it was awesome. Yes. I really like Smash Up, too. My mm. wife loves that game. Uh, I have a game called Five Crowns, Quiddler, where you're dealt a deck of letters, and you have to make words with your letters. Gloom, the game where you win by making your opponent miserable. Of course, Munchkin, in all of its numerous variations. Um, There's now a, a card game for Oregon Trail, which has been out for a while. And that talk about retro revival, that kind of hits us right where we live. Of course, they... They styled it directly out of the old Apple computer game. Nice. And then uh, at the end of card games, kind of the deep end, there's games like Magic the Gathering and other collectible card games, because Magic isn't the only one. There's a Star Wars collectible card game and a dozen others like it. See, I think that you've got some good categories here. There are some games that I see as teachable moments to put them into other types of games. If there are people that have only played with the like the Monopoly dice mechanics, there's going to be some mechanics that are going to be a bit foreign to them, such as resource management or even... Oh, I'm getting there, too. Oh, excellent. I have more categories. Oh, oh, then <laughs> I see. retract my statement, sir. <laughs> the next category is called Has a BoardGameGeek.com Account. These are ones that... I put risk on here, but even though risk is quite mainstream, this is one that you've got to be a certain geek to play it, and you've got to have a good amount of time on your hands. There is a contract in our Battlestar Galactica box. After a, after someone in the house, we're not going to say who, said, no, 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 it's not too late to start. And after <laughs> the game ended at 2 a.m., a contract went in saying, we will not begin this game after 6 o'clock. I think we could probably add the Battlestar Galactica game onto this list as well. I also put the game Seven Wonders, Dominion, Puerto Rico, Pillars of Earth, based on the novel, the Red Dragon Inn. It's kind of like a fantasy-themed one where your adventurers have succeeded in delving and conquering the dungeon. You've killed the dragon and looted the horde, and now you're back in the pub, and let's see what happens next. Mm. And then the game Coup in the dystopian universe. My child, my youngest child, is creepily good at that game. Now, I know there are different versions of this game, all set in the dystopian universe, but the one that seems to be getting the most press is Koo. Yeah. And that frightens me that your daughter is that good at it. She will annihilate an entire table of adults. And also a little proud. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) My next category is Risk is for Beginners, and these are for the people who... You don't just have a couple of hours to play a game. You have most of your day, if not week or month. Axis and Allies. That's at the top of the list. Seven Ages. And if you've got the better part of two months, the campaign for North Africa. (laughs) Have you guys heard of this game? I am not familiar with that, no. Oh, I originally read about this game in an article on, like, io9, and... 
It was originally published in 1978, I believe. It takes 8 to 10 players. The map for it is 10 square feet. Jeez. And the... Let me put it this way. If you are someone who, being in charge of the logistical side or arm of the armed forces, sounds like a lot of fun to you, this game is for you. You have your allied side and your access side. It's 10 players, and it's recommended that you have five people per side. On one side, you have your commander-in-chief, your logistics commander, your rear area commander, your air commander, and your frontline commander. And each person is in charge of resource allocation, of maintaining that. There are logbooks, which have to be carefully maintained and annotated throughout the entire gameplay. The total time listed to play one solid game is 1,200 hours. I think that game is for somebody a bit more dedicated than me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it was fascinating that such a thing exists and that there are people out there who love it and are playing it. Well, I mean, I really don't have any room to talk in terms of how much time it takes to play it. I mean, I've been involved in the same role-playing campaign for the last several years. So, I mean, you know, you break it up over days, and I imagine if you have the space to dedicate to it, then mm. awesome. But this is a game where one of your frontline commanders says, all right, I'm going to move my third and fourth artillery and my fifth uh, regiment up to this line and attack the enemy. And then your logistics commander says, no, I'm sorry, you can't. Uh, you forgot to allocate resources from the supply dump. Your convoy, which you were supposed to do through the through the Navy, was never properly sent through, and so you don't have enough ammo or gasoline to make that move. But what, wait, when was I supposed to have done that? Oh, let me check my logs. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, 20 hours ago. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. Yeah, you go glaze-eyed just thinking about it. Right. But then again, that's for a different class of player. Everyone has games that they love, different types that they love, and this is just for a, a different breed. I, and, and props to them more. <laughs> yes. The last... I'm reading something about this. And I'm just going to quote this website that I'm reading. If pasta points aren't properly managed, Italian troops may desert, reflecting the inability to feed hungry soldiers in the field because they cannot boil their pasta. <laughs> yeah, he's not joking. I, I know. That's legit. <laughs> but away from that, something that is not as detail-oriented, but still detail-oriented, the last category I have is tabletop strategy game guys. And these are the guys who have a box full of foam and miniatures and who are playing like Warhammer, Battletech, and now Star Wars Armada. I've seen that. Which, I'll, I'll be honest, every time I see some Star Wars Armada little miniatures in their fully painted glory, I stare for a couple of seconds and then I have to go, no, no, <laughs> walk away. Walk away, James. <laughs> I'm just it, imagining your wife approaching you as you are buried in ships. Well, and you say, okay, things got a little out of hand. You know, there is you a... don't know the power of the dark side. <laughs> okay, there is a little comic I found a couple of years ago when it was either Star Wars Armada or one of its versions came out. And it shows this dad and he's with his son. And they've just got the basic set, which is a couple of X-Wings and TIE Fighters. And she's like, oh, is that a new Star Wars game? He's like, yeah, yeah, this is the core set. And the wife's like, core set? That sounds like there's expansions. And the dad's like, oh, no, it's totally casual. And then the next scene is 
the dad is in an X-Wing pilot outfit. The son is in a TIE fighter pilot outfit. There's X-Wings, Y-Wings, TIE fighters, TIE interceptors, Star Destroyers, Mon Calamari cruisers. The Death Star is on top of the couch. And all of these other various types of ships. And the wife is just staring at the husband. And he looks up at her and sheeply says, mistakes were made. (laughs) I had forgotten about this. And I just have to say, I I really related with that comic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I think I hit that once I started into when I when I got my first set of the Star Wars miniatures game that uh, was put out by Wizards of the Coast, and I still have a trunk full of those. Yeah, but what keeps me away from it is that I don't have the money to just buy them to like sit on my shelf so they look pretty. And if I can't find anyone to play Magic the Gathering with right now, I'm not going to have any time to find someone to play Star Wars Armada with either. Absolutely. (laughs) So those are my lists. Those are my little suggestions. Not comprehensive whatsoever. There are just so many different games out there and many that I have seen and read about but never had a chance to play yet. I'm hoping to get into them myself one day. See, the way that I do my my game, I'll admit that my gaming is relatively simple compared to Magic the Gathering or, or any protracted war game. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with, you know, my situation in life right now as a, as a parent and doing my ministry and also a full-time job. So I tend to gravitate towards more to the 30-minute to, to two-hour games. But there's still a lot of fun and complexity to be had in that. Seven Wonders, I think, is an excellent example. Getting people to play Seven Wonders when they've never heard of it before is a bit more of a difficult thing. But I think that it's interesting that you have different combinations of these, as you said, these gateway drugs that actually can, in very real mechanical ways, lead up to something like Seven Wonders. You know, it's interesting that you bring up Seven Wonders. I meant to put this in the card game one, but there is a two-person version called Seven Wonders Duel, uh, which is a card game that Joy and I picked up when Amazon was having a big game sale. And we've played it a couple of times, and we found it was easy to learn, only takes about a half hour to play, and was fun. That sounds like it might be worth checking out. Now, I'll tell you what, a couple of things that my wife and I are currently uh, in with with our friends. Um, uh, sushi Go Party. Um, there's a two-player Sushi Go, but there's also a party version where you can customize the way that the game plays every time. And it has that hand management and passing mechanic that you see in Seven Wonders. That's an easy bridge. So is a game like Splendor. Have either of you played that? I have no. not. The game is all engine building. You're a jeweler who's buying gems and uh, gem mines in order to attract nobles, and you acquire points by first getting, uh, getting these tokens that represent gems in order to buy mines. As you buy mines, they count as having tokens, so there's fewer tokens you have to pick up, and you can build more and complex engines to get to the higher point value cards. Play this a few times with somebody who is relatively new to gaming, and you give them the engine-building mechanic. You also give them the idea of resource management. Combine that with something like Sushi Go Party, after they get that singular mechanic on their hand, or in their head, then you can develop towards more and more complex games without having to overwhelm somebody with a vast array of mechanics that they may not be familiar with. I just looked this one up on Amazon and added it to my wish list because I've seen this one mentioned a few times and I've seen it in the game store. And uh, I think this is one I'm going to get. My wife usually beats me soundly at that game. 
and I'm trying to figure out why. I mean, it, in <laughs> Dominion, I wind up building far better engines. So I thought, yeah, I, I should do all right with this. She is able to just break it down and see so many paths ahead and does a fantastic job with this game. Well, remember, diamonds are a girl's best friend. <laughs> oh, well done. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. One thing I want to recommend for our listeners is that if you decide to get any of the games we mentioned, of course, you can find them for a good price and usual free shipping if you get them on Amazon and if you're a Prime member. But also check out your local game store. A lot of times you can find these games there as well, and only a couple of dollars, three, four, five dollars more than what you would pay on Amazon. Consider getting it there. Support your local game store. It will help them a lot more than it will help Amazon. And also, your friendly local game store is able to uh, better advise you as to what type of games that you can buy, since you can tell them what you like and they know what they have available. And many of them also have demo copies of these games. Yes. You can try it before you buy. That has happened a couple of times with us, our local game store. They've got just stacks of demo games. And there's been a couple of times we've gone in and seen one that we wanted to get. They had a demo copy, and most game stores these days have several long tables for different types of tournaments that they run. And we just sat at one, tested it out. We found out this game's awesome, went and bought it. And so definitely we'll plug the local game stores. It also, is, there was a, one of our listeners had mentioned on Facebook, and I want to reinforce this. It's good to know that these people aren't being paid by these companies to plug their games. We're not getting a dime from any of these companies or any of these places. Yeah. Um, if those well, companies do, a small caveat to that, we do have an Amazon affiliate account. So if you buy something after clicking on it through our website, we will get like three or four cents. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and thank you, Brian. And if we ever do get any sort of money, we'll let you know so that um, you can take that into account. Okay, well, I had a question for you guys that I wanted to surprise you with just to get your off-the-cuff reactions. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> don't worry, it's not bad. I'm looking forward to this uh, with hope, caution, and trepidation. Well, see, now you built it up to the point it's going to be disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. With the holidays coming up, there's always those Movies that we like to watch with our families. Uh, I have a list of them myself that I try to watch every year. So for you guys, which is your favorite Doctor Who Christmas special? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Sophie's Choice, right? Um, it is. To, to me, it feels the least Christmassy. But uh, I actually like this, the most recent one, um, the Peter Capaldi one with the, oh gosh, and I'm not prepped, so I don't have the name, but the superhero flavored one, where the kids swallowed the D20, which I really want to know how, and he became a superhero. <laughs> I haven't actually seen that one yet. I'll probably watch it in the next couple of weeks. Nardal is absolutely amazing. Uh, the dialogue is incredibly witty. It has, I mean, it, superhero is not something that Doctor Who usually does, but it comes off well in universe, and it's, uh, the dialogue is just absolutely fantastic, as well as being wonderfully funny. That's the return of Doctor Mysterio. I just looked it up. Yes, that's the one. Well, for me, it's uh, the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe. That is also good. That is by far one of my – it's one of my favorite Doctor Who episodes in general. There's maybe four or five of them that will make me cry every single time, and that's one of them. Yeah. Is this Fairyland? No, it's not Fairyland. Don't be stupid. Fairyland looks completely different. <laughs> <laughs>
For me, it's going to be a, a toss-up between the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe and a Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. That was a good one, too. For vastly different reasons, but I think I'm going to have to go with you, Brian, and just give the edge to the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe. That one has got a good mix of humor, of emotion, parts that make you laugh out loud at the absurdity, and parts that just start to pull tears from your eyes at the emotion that is being portrayed on the screen. That actually feels more Christmassy than even the one that I named, if that makes any sort of sense. No, no, absolutely does. (laughs) I will also put the caveat, I have not seen any of the Christmas specials with Peter Capaldi. Actually, I haven't seen any of the episodes with Peter Capaldi yet. I am criminally behind in watching Doctor Who. Well, do something about that. I With what time? <laughs> I mean, the few times that my wife and I actually get to sit down and watch a show with kitties in bed, it's either going to be catching up on Orville, but now the new half season or full season, I forget where we're at, of S.H.I.E.L.D. has just started. Oh. So we've got to work that into our rotation as well. Oh. I have fallen woefully behind on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Well, do something about that. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, I, the last episodes that I saw of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. were, oh, gosh, it featured that, um, that redhead. Um, um, oh, yeah, Ghost Rider. And... <laughs> And I like that season. I enjoyed it. The thing is, I'm, I'm, I watch it on Netflix, and I'm concerned that uh, as Disney is, is moving into its own streaming service, that that might wind up being the last season that I see, depending on when they pull all of their episodes. Yeah, it could be. So, yeah, you hear that, Disney? I'm not making the switch. <laughs> not even for S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, me neither. But they'll come out on DVD eventually, and that's when I'll just put it on the, the Netflix mailing list. There you go. So I'm going to admit, Brian, you surprised me. I thought I had it in my head where you were going with that question, but then you just completely pulled the rug out from underneath me. Like, which Doctor Who Christmas special is your favorite? Uh, I I was all ready to say, I thought you were going to say, what's your favorite holiday movie to watch with your family? I was all ready to say White Christmas. And you're like, Doctor Who Christmas special. Like, dude, you totally caught me flat-footed. See, I thought that you were going to ask something to the effect of, like, how is it that we best celebrate the holy mystery and profound paradox that is central to our faith of the, of the divine becoming incarnate, and how do we represent that, you know, to our... I'm three, you I'm did not. You, me, <laughs> you did not think that. But I wanted to... I'm calling shenanigans on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Brian, so why didn't you ask that? (laughs) Well, because we've already gone on long enough, and I didn't want to give Mike an opportunity to talk for three hours. (laughs) That would be episode (laughs) 7.5. I keep my Christmas sermons down to 45 minutes. That's better than a lot of pastors I know. No, actually, yeah, no. On Christmas Eve, I keep it 15. Good man. Good man. Yeah, so you have a lot of, of talking to make up for, see, and we don't want to give you that opportunity. <laughs> He's like, fine, I'll only do 15 minutes now, but come New Year's, watch out. <laughs> so before we head into the end of the show, being who I am, I feel like just one more time, we should talk about Star Wars and The Last Jedi. <laughs> I feel for me it's almost obligatory. But then again, if people who really know me, like the two of you, you realize that's just normal. See, this is 
of the thing is that I've avoided so much of what's going on. I, I want to be surprised with what's on the screen. So I've seen the latest mm-hmm. uh, theatrical trailer, but I've not even seen the TV spot. I've seen one TV spot, and it was one of those rare moments that we had the TV on. And uh, we don't have cable, but we have, like, gone are the bunny ear antennas. We have, like, one of those <laughs> flat digital antennas that you stick on the wall or the window. And we had that mostly because last year we wanted to watch the Olympics, and that was the best way to do it. And we were watching something on the TV. We might have even been watching, like, the Weather Channel, just getting in and maybe watching something on PBS. And a Star Wars TV spot came on, and half of it had been stuff I had never seen before. And was it a ray of hope? I did see Chewbacca being abusive to a small, furry, penguiny looking animal. Now, did you ever see that uh, episode of How I Met Your Mother when they're trying not to find out what the score of the Super Bowl was? I have not seen a full episode of How I Met Your Mother. Now, they've got this pact. They're going to watch the Super Bowl together. It's their tradition, but none of them can be there on Super Bowl day. And so they're trying to avoid any information about who won the Super Bowl. And Ted's walking around with. I forget what he calls it, but he's got like these uh, industrial earmuffs and glasses with just like a slit in them. And he's going to, to get the uh, the chicken wings and he can't hear or see anything. Like, that's how I feel about Star Wars information. I'm just trying to keep all of it out. I'm not clicking on any links on it. I'll watch a theatrical trailer in the theater or when it comes on YouTube, but I haven't listened to any Star Wars podcasts. I want to keep my experience of it when I see it in the theater as clean as possible. So we're all on the same page there. (laughs) Yeah. I very much relate with the little comic that I saw where a guy is crossing off days on a December calendar, and his wife asks him, counting down the days till Christmas? He goes, no, to Star Wars. Which, since we no longer have Lord of the Rings movies, it seems like Star Wars has moved in and taken the big December time slot. Yeah. Yep. Which I'm okay with. But I do wonder, I know we have episode, we're coming up episode eight. There's going to be episode nine. There is a Han Solo movie coming out. How many more are we going to get? Until they stop making money. So forever. Yeah, there's another trilogy in the works. See, now we're getting to the point that I don't know how I feel about that. Because, (laughs) okay, there was a time when I just wanted any Star Wars, any at all. This was before episode one was released. And the only thing that we really had were the books and occasionally a video game on like the Super Nintendo or the PlayStation and that was rare and that was really the only Star Wars we got. Sometime a comic book from Dark Horse and then 1991 happened. Yeah. (laughs) And we realized maybe we don't actually want that. (laughs) Wait, was 1991 when Zahn did his trilogy? Zahn did his trilogy and then books just started coming out. And I was on top of every one of them Same. Until, until the Crystal Star. I read the Crystal Star, and I said, uh, you got out I when the, not keep up with it. Yeah, you got out when the getting was good. I stayed through all of it, including the Yuzen Vong set of books. And that's why it's taking me so long to start reading Star Wars books again. <laughs> it's like, I've been hurt before. I don't want that to happen again. But what I was saying is that there was a time when we just would have done anything for more Star Wars movies. And now we've got an abundance of them and with more on the horizon. And I'm like, okay, well, whether I want them to happen or not, it's going to happen. We're going to have 10, 11, 12, and maybe even 13, 14, and 15. 
So I guess it's just a wait and see where they go with it. Well, and that's one of the things is that I'm prepared to be behind it as long as it's good. And when it's not, then I'll quit watching. Here's my fear. Because we have both Marvel and Star Wars are now under the auspices of the House of Mouse. Is that in some future Marvel movie like Guardians of the Galaxy 5, Thor 14, that you're going to have in some galactic corner on some junk world, maybe the collector again or whatever, you're going to have someone reach down and pick something up out of the trash or out of a museum, and it's going to be this technological cylindrical device, and someone's going to go, what's this? And another character will say, do you know what that is? No. It's a relic from a more civilized age. It sounds better than Deadpool showing up at the Jedi Academy. You had to say that, didn't you? You had to say it. They're listening, and now it's... That could have been what happened to the Jedi Academy. <laughs> this is why they fell. Be, between episodes six and seven. Oh, uh, now I don't feel so good about saying that. <laughs> but you understand my fear. My fear is that in some way, in some form, they're going to make a connection between the two. And I'm like, just don't. Please don't. I hate to break it to you, but I guarantee there's a TARDIS in every single sci-fi movie ever. So they're connected. <laughs> well, you know, there's R2-D2s in most science fiction movies, too. And a Millennium Falcon in most science fiction movies. There's an R2-D2 in the uh, pre-show for the uh, one of the space shuttle exhibits. Hmm. Awesome. My friend Blocky put it there. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yep, little R2 head in the International Space Station. Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry, but that feels very appropriate. That does. Yeah. <laughs> well, guys, uh, was there anything else we wanted to chat about? I think that covers the list. I think so, and then some. Well, I guess that will take us to the zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, what have you got for us? Oh, actually, this one is, I decided to go low budget again this time, and we've actually done some pretty extensive, uh, actually double-blind tests here, and with some phenomenal results. Uh, a beekeeper suit actually. Um, great, low budget, and in our tests, we found that you cannot bite through two layers of canvas. The tests were actually pretty rigorous. We had, as I said, a double blind. The experimental group got the beekeeper suit, and uh, the control group, well, we told them that they were wearing a beekeeper suit, but in fact, we gave them a sugar pill. <laughs> <laughs> Swallow this. It will protect me from the zombies? Absolutely. We had some bleeders. <laughs> Not for long, I bet. Okay, I know nothing about beekeeper suits. Are they really double-layer canvas cloth? That's what I'm told. Okay. I've never worn one. See, that's I know that actually the human jaw is actually incredibly strong. And the reason that we don't use our full strength to bite down is because we're consciously checking ourselves. But is it strong enough to bite through several layers of clothing? There's only one way to find out. <laughs> Brian, how thick is your jacket? I am not going to get involved in that. <laughs> <laughs> but could the people in these zombie movies have been saved if they just went out wearing double denim? Motorcycle jacket. Yeah. That's something that's never addressed. I, mean, I guess if it did work, it wouldn't make for a very thrilling zombie movie. <laughs> the zombie apocalypse was staved off by a trip to the Harley Davidson quality clothing store. Why is everybody in this movie wearing mittens? <laughs> and with that, I think we're going to wrap it up for this episode. 
and for this year. We want to thank you all for listening in. We hope that you all have a Merry Christmas. And from Brian, Mike, and James, we want to say be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.